This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today our guest is Chris Harper, novelist, journalist, and journalism professor at Temple University's School of Media and Communication. Chris comes from an extensive background in the field as a journalist for more than 20 years, with posts at the Associated Press in Chicago, Newsweek in Chicago, Washington, and Beirut, ABC News in Cairo and Rome, and 2020. He contributes a weekly column focused on trends in media for the Washington Times, and his work has been instrumental in promoting crucial worldwide conversations about media ethics, the changing landscape of journalism, and mass communication. Chris has edited and authored multiple books, from Flyer or Country, taking a deeper look at the lives of baby boomers, to What's Next in Media, What's Next in Mass Communication, and finally, and that's the way it will be, news and information in a digital world. During his time at the helm of Temple's Multimedia Urban Reporting Lab, the program's publication, Philadelphia Neighborhoods, won Editor and Publisher's Epi Award for Best College Journalism Website. Chris graduated from the University of Nebraska with a Bachelor of Arts degree in English Literature and Journalism, and later obtained his Master's in Journalism from Northwestern University. Before his current role in Temple's Journalism Department, he taught at New York University, Rostov State University in Russia, and Adam Mickiewicz University in Poland. Chris, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you very much for having me, Robert. Tell us about your background growing up in the Midwest and how you fleshed out those experiences in your book, Flyover Country, Baby Boomers and Their Stories. What insights did you feel were most important to share with readers? Well, um, I actually got the idea for the book um, by watching the movie The Commitments uh, about a British, uh, I'm sorry, an, an Irish uh, rock and roll band uh, that sang R&B. And when I was in high school in Sioux Falls, South Dakota in the late uh, 60s, uh, I was part of a rock and roll band, uh, The Trippers, which is now a member of the uh, South Dakota uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And what brought me to the, to the theme was to look at um, a variety of people. We had a large graduating class of 600 people in essentially the middle of nowhere, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And so I was able to uh, take my experiences, the experiences of, of my classmates, and, and essentially talk about uh, the issues that affect us as uh, baby boomers um, back then and, and today. And the notion of baby boomers obviously has connotations of the of the passing calendar and a certain age group. So when were you aware of actually what baby boomers are and what they represent? Well, I don't think that that, uh, that tag uh, really reson resonated with me until uh, probably the 1980s. Um, essentially, you know, my generation was essentially sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> yes. And uh, I guess we were the sex, drugs, and rock and roll generation. Mm -hmm. But as we as we grow older, um, we you know we found a, a lot of common threads. And it was interesting in going back to Sioux Falls Lincoln High School in in South Dakota. Um, I also talked with the members of the 2009 class, and essentially 
many of the central themes still existed for them um, 40 years after uh, my uh, my group of uh, fellow graduate student uh, fellow graduates uh, uh, left Sioux Falls Lincoln. And what experiences early on led you to pursue a career in journalism? All the cool, cool kids in high school did it. <laughs> well, you could have pursued a career in drugs, rock and roll, and, and uh, you know, crime. <laughs> Others did that as well. Why journalism? Um, essentially, my, <clears throat> my father, who and our family comes from Rollins, Wyoming, a very small town in, well, the sixth largest town in Wyoming, which is one of the smallest states in the nation. And he wanted his three sons to be a doctor, an engineer, and a lawyer. And my brothers are, one's a retired doctor, one's a retired engineer, and I drifted. Um, I started out uh, um, uh, studying in a, in a pre-law program and thought it was pretty dull. And so I walked by the Department of Journalism um, as a sophomore and said, you know what, I think I'm going to try that. And the first uh, professor that I had said, you know what, you should really find another career. I'm glad that I didn't listen to him. <laughs> it's a good thing. Uh, have you ever, just uh, as an aside, have you ever gone back to that professor, given where you are now? Uh, no, I haven't. Yeah. Uh, just uh, a fun thought, it would occur to me. Um, and so talking about your early education, uh, so how do your undergraduate and graduate education as well as your uh, experience breaking into the field of journalism differ from the experience of the students you teach today? Well, I think that um, the experiences are different in, insofar as my students need to know all types of media. But I actually was a multimedia reporter. I, I started out as a photographer and then um, wrote for a newspaper and then, um, and then combined the two. So my, my first job um, as an intern was at the Idaho Statesman in Boise, Idaho, and I shot pictures and, and wrote stories. And then I, you know, then I went into to radio and television with ABC. And then when I, at the end of my career in, uh, in television and in, you know, into, into legacy or traditional journalism, I actually, I, I think that I am responsible for the first um, use of the internet and the World Wide Web in a story that I did about the Oklahoma City bombing for 2020. Mm -hmm. So, you know, while my experience as a, as a graduate and an, and an undergraduate student was far different from, uh, from the students today, ultimately I had to adapt, um, renew, uh, learn new types of technologies as I went along. Um, some I did well, some I didn't do too, too well. Mm -hmm. And what initially brought you to Russia and then Poland? It, it seems to be an unusual track, especially to teach. Well, uh, I had a, a Fulbright. I was a Fulbright scholar in Poland. Uh, my uh, wife is from a Polish-American family, and uh, and so I wanted to go back and and spend a longer time with her family, which is which. They, they lived very close to, uh, to Poznan, which is where Adam Mickiewicz University is. Um, I, I spent a lot of time overseas and, and covered Eastern Europe before, uh, before the fall of the Soviet Union. So, it, you know, it, we had gone to Poland before, uh, and it just seemed that it would be a nice thing to do to, 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 have, that, uh, to, to have that exposure. As so far as Russia is concerned, uh, I always, I always in, enjoyed traveling in, in Russia, and we had an opportunity um, to 
to do a program where we brought professors and students um, into New York University and then we went over there and taught it uh, at Rostov State and it was financed by the State Department uh, by, by a, a, a about $250,000 grant and it was really a, a wonderful exchange program for three years. Um, <laughs> <talk>. <laughs> uh, well, what differences, if any, were inherent in the teaching world of journalism uh, when you were a professor, uh, both in Russia and Poland, and on what aspects of media are conversations in that country generally focused? Most of the students were, were this is, um, this is in the, uh, the mid, to, I'm sorry, this is in the, the early 2000s. And so um, what it, they were most interested in um, is that they wanted to know about the American media. Um, it was, you know, a transition from from Soviet-style journalism, and they were quite interested in in the techniques, in terms of of storytelling, in terms of um, video storytelling as well, and 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 also how um, the American mass media worked, uh, from anything from newspapers to advertising. And comparing what the situation is both in Russia and Poland today, would you say that there's more or less transparency in the press uh, and in journalism than there was back when you were there? I think that there's more transparency in Poland. I don't think that there's more transparency in Russia. Um, when I was there, it was, it was quite an, uh, an open investigative time where you know, Russian journalists were really breaking out of the Soviet model. Uh, now I think that there's far more censorship under um, under Putin than there was uh, when I was there. Are you optimistic going forward for what it'll look like as far as journalism and transparency in Russia going forward? I'm not so sure. It really depends on on how long um, Vladimir Putin stays in power and who will follow him. I mean, the you know the recent events in in Russia and Ukraine are. Uh, I'm not optimistic in the immediate future. Yeah. It's, uh, it's been really awful just to witness what's going on. And uh, then with the recent assassination uh, right outside of the, uh, the Kremlin. Uh, going back uh, years ago, you presented at MIT on blogging and journalism standards. Uh, and you delved deeper into, quote, how bloggers have used the web as a means to step outside of traditional journalistic standards of objectivity, balance, and fairness to return to perhaps a mixture of the partisan press during the 18th and 19th centuries and the muckrakers of the early 20th century, end quote. Can you expound on this statement, and where does this uh, return to a combination of partisan press and muckraking lead us? Well, it's, un it's unclear to me, um, and I actually am, am studying and have stud studied that for, for quite a while. Um, the notion of objectivity is a fairly recent one. Um, it's only, you know, it, it depends on, on who you read. It either started immediately after the muckrakers and, and the First World War in about 1920 and lasted until the 1970s and still has some continuing um, um, followers today, although the Society of Professional Journalists uh, has not had objectivity in its, uh, in its uh, code of ethics for quite some while. Um, when it comes to fairness and balance, 
the difficulty with those terms is that they're really loaded politically. Is you know my definition of fairness may be different than yours. Um, it may be different than a variety of people. The same goes with uh, with balance. You know my balance may be different than than your balance. And so what I've actually been studying on sabbatical right now uh, is is there a way to come up with a code of ethics that doesn't hang on to those very loaded words and transparency is one but again transparency depends upon how you define it is it meaning does it mean that you need to be transparent in how you obtain the story or does it mean that as a reporter you have to be just uh, you have to be transparent in terms of what your background is where you you know I you know putting your taxes out there your political viewpoints so that um, you take kind of a European model of presenting facts and analysis and you come from a point of view. Is there a standard code of ethics that journalists currently follow, at least among the major publications? Most publications and the, and the legacy networks have their own code of ethics. So the New York Times has its code of ethics, the Washington Post. Uh, when I worked at ABC, there was a, uh, a huge book of standards and practices. But there are some which... Uh, you know, kind of weave throughout uh, most of these uh, codes of ethics. The Society of Professional Journalists is probably the most prominent one. It was recently uh, updated and and uh, and edited somewhat. Um, there's also the um, uh, Radio and Television Digital News Producers um, Association (RTDNA). Uh, it's changed its name. Its name. It used to just be radio and television. Um, again, the codes of ethics are are fairly similar, although there are some some certain differences within uh, within radio and television. So you can't stage a video. You can't. Uh, um, you you know you can't. There are things that technically you can do with radio and television, which you can't do with uh, with the the text uh, verbiage or with a with a newspaper. And does the modern approach to journalism necessitate more of a responsibility on the part of the reader to read between the lines and decide which sources to trust, or has uh, skepticism caused by bias in the media always existed? Well, I think that there all, there's always been skepticism, and much of that skepticism actually comes from journalism's the, the journalists themselves. I mean, unfortunately, we're skeptics and we're cynics, and um, and we don't you know we tend to go for the negative stories rather than the positive stories. I, I think that it's incumbent upon um, readers or viewers of of news to be active participants, and I think that. I think that the World Wide Web has, has, has given a lot more power to the reader and, and the viewer to do exactly that. It's not the, the top-down um, uh, view from the editors and, and the anchors of, uh, of, of uh, legacy media, uh, which is you know, the gatekeeper theory where you know, we come down with the, the stone tablets from the mount and tell you what the news is. Um, the reader and the viewer can play a much more active part. Can you give us an idea of what the media ethics are in general these days? I think that they're relatively low. Um, I, you know, I'm engaged in as, as a consultant for a variety of uh, attorneys um, who are bringing cases mainly to do with uh, with defamation and libel. And as a, an ex expert witness, 
Um, I don't speak about the law. I speak about the ethics that were in fact practiced. And we've had we've had so many cases recently. Uh, whether it's Brian Williams at, at NBC News, uh, there was just a, a a story today about the winner of a international photography award, and it was taken away from him uh, because he lied about where he took the pictures, uh, the photographs that went along with it. We've seen a number of very troubling ethical. Uh, breakdowns uh, within the media. Uh, the Rolling Stone article about uh, about uh, rape in at the University of Virginia. Um, you know, there's there's just a a lot of problems that are going on in terms of the the ethics that are being practiced that that aren't being followed, and that's one of the reasons that I'm I'm looking into it even uh, more deeply than what I used to. Well, because the law is such a powerful tool, and so much is at stake. You know, Brian Williams gets suspended for six months and he loses, you know, what, five, ten million dollars. I mean, who knows what? Plus uh, uh, all of those years of building up a reputation, which is now shot. And so let alone the, the public perception. But again, because the law is such a, a strong motivator, it would seem to to be ethical in their work. Why do these things keep happening when libel and and uh, and lawsuits are so readily uh, uh, available? Well, I think it's important to to make a differentiation between the law and ethics. I mean, what may be legal may not be ethical. What may be ethical may not be legal. So, um, it's I think it is important to keep them somewhat separate. Um, but the ethics, for the most part have to come from within the news organization and from within uh, within the journalists themselves and they're given you know guideposts uh, the extreme is when they really mess up and they're brought they're brought into a court for a variety of reasons uh, I think that I think that one of the one of the major problems when it comes to the to this breakdown is um, the desire for the gotcha story and also the speed with which a lot of people are reporting stories. Uh, a lot of errors are made, and they're, they're generally really quite silly errors um, that are made that, uh, that cause some news organizations to be drawn into court. I mean, one, one case that I was involved in, um, a newspaper essentially um, took the name, there, there was a, an indictment of a woman's daughter, and the, the reporter used the name of the mother rather than the daughter and then refused to uh, correct the story and so essentially um, the newspaper came out with a story that the mother was indicted for aiding and abetting a murder and then refused to c correct it and they got sued and they paid up that seems like such an easy fix why in the world would they refuse to correct something so factual i think it's i think it's simply a question of arrogance um, i think that uh, I think that many journalists and sometimes me think that we know better than others do and and it it, it you know I, I've seen a number of cases where um, where news organizations have specifically violated their own ethics codes uh, when it comes to the use of um, anonymous sources is what we call them in journalism um, and you know I was involved in one case where uh, the the news organization said that every anonymous source must be vetted by someone in management. And there were 27 instances where anonymous sources were, were used to bootstrap the story into um, a, a story about someone being a made man in the mafia, and no one had ever checked the sources. No one knew the identities other than the, the two reporters. 
And you made the distinction between legal and ethical. For our listeners, can you give an example of something that may be legal but not ethical or vice versa? Well, if it, uh, if it comes to freedom of speech cases in the U.S. Supreme Court, for example, there are, um, you know, there are cases uh, where a Ku Klux Klan member and members have burned a cross. And the court has found that that's protected speech um, when it's not, when it's not um, directed at a specific individual. So here is, here is an unethical action, um, in my estimation, but it is protected by the law because of freedom of speech. And you probably have other examples that come to mind, aren't there? Um, there are many. Um, you know, when, when you have, um, for example, the, court, the, the, the U.S. Supreme Court found that burning a flag is, is protected speech. Um, using a flag to, um, to make part of your genes is protected speech. Um, and in my mind, I don't think that these are ethical um, decisions. They may be, but they're, they're certainly legal decisions that the U.S. Supreme Court has, has upheld. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world. From the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions, Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate Media interview with managing editor Robert Rim and Chris Harper, novelist, journalist, and journalism professor at Temple University. Right, and, and obviously the media organizations have the power to be able to enforce what they feel is ethical, uh, while something may in fact be legal and uh, unethical. Uh, the organizations themselves do have control over that, don't they? Yes, they do. And, and, and here's one area which I was involved in, which was the use of hidden cameras and, and hidden microphones to do investigations. Now, there are certain restrictions in, in states uh, where you cannot use hidden cameras. And there are other states, New York and Texas being um, uh, two of them, uh, Pennsylvania not being one of them, where uh, essentially I can say it's called a one-party consent state. In New York, I can say, I agree to do this secret rec recording, and I don't need the permission of the person that I'm investigating. Um, you know, you get into some very treacherous areas when you go down the line of using hidden cameras and hidden microphones. Well, I'm actually, I'm actually quite hopeful uh, in terms of the ability for us to to go forward. From you know, we've had we've had the World Wide Web as as, as part of our milieu for about you know 15 to 20 years in terms of its. Um, uh, access and, and its uh, expansion. And it's actually created a lot of havoc in legacy media, the New York Times, uh, uh, the Chicago Tribune, the Los Angeles Times, uh, the networks. But it's also offered an opportunity to create 
uh, news organizations like Vice.com. Um, Vice.com uh, is, you know, is, a, is an absolute rave and something that all my students watch. Um, it started out as a, um, a kind of punk alternative in Canada as a news magazine, as a, a give a free newspaper, and now it's a $5 billion entity based in Brooklyn. And, you know, Shane Smith, who, who heads Vice.com, you know, does some, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty much rock and roll journalism, but Vice.com is, is one of the few organizations, if not the only one, that has given us a, a really interesting look uh, last year at what uh, the self-proclaimed Islamic State was about. I think that there are Others, uh, you know, um, Vox.com by uh, Ezra uh, Klein, formerly of the Washington Post, is, you know, a, uh, a liberal leftist, um, uh, you know, news entity. Um, and, you know, it has gotten, you know, some, some good reviews. It's also gotten some negative reviews. But I think that there are a lot of opportunities out there for people to, you know, essentially seek their bliss outside of, the the traditional legacy media, and I think that I think that many people are taking advantage of uh, of those opportunities. And it would seem that students would be excited at those opportunities, wouldn't they? Absolutely, and that's you know that's that's part of what we did at, at, at Temple was to train the students and to provide them not only with the ethical construct but also the the technical constructs to you know to to write a, a a text or a newspaper story to file radio to take photographs to do videos to put them up on the web and 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 that's what philadelphia neighborhoods dot com was all about and and philadelphia neighborhoods also did something else which was to provide coverage of neighborhoods that were not um, that were not often covered by um, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Philadelphia Daily News, or or the local television station. So not only did it provide the students with an opportunity to learn these skills, not only in this class, but in, in prior classes, it also gave the, um, the neighborhoods an opportunity to tell their stories. And talking about Philadelphia neighborhoods, you co-directed Temple's Multimedia Urban Reporting Lab for a number of years. And during the, that time, the program received one of the highest accolades for media sources. And so the, the students' work in uh, Philadelphia neighborhoods and in the newsroom, it readies them for 21st century media that demands, in your quote, a new kind of journalism professional who can efficiently and effectively translate stories across the converging media platforms. So how exactly is this achieved in the lab, or is most of it done out in the field? Uh, well, um, the students the students have to take um, an audio visual class so that they learn how to do radio and television. They also have to take a, 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 a multimedia uh, storytelling class. And so, when they come in to this course as, as seniors, the first few weeks in the classroom are to make sure that they really do understand and remember everything that they learned in the in the prior classes. So there's kind of an intense boot camp at the beginning, if you will, to make sure that all the students are are up to snuff and, and able to communicate in these various uh, formats. And then and then basically most of it is 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 done out in the field. They they generally work in teams of two. Um, we generally send them outside their comfort zones. So, you know, uh, for example, uh, Strawberry Mansion is a is a very poor neighborhood uh, in Northwest Philadelphia or North Philadelphia, 
you know, depending upon your definition. And I, you know, when I was there, I would send uh, uh, Caucasian kids there um, because I wanted them to see that that Strawberry Mansion, which I go through every day on my way to Temple, is a neighborhood like everything, every other neighborhood in in Philadelphia. It has it's good people, it's bad people. The the, the parents generally want for their kids to have a better life. And so, you know, what what we want them to take away from this is not only the technical skills, which will change and they'll be able to adapt, but also that, you know, that kind of, those kind of life lessons as well. I remember, um, um, uh, I, you know, I, I tried to kind of mix up the, the various teams so that they weren't going to neighborhoods that they would necessarily feel comfortable in. But, um, you know, we also, it also taught them how they needed to act, how they needed to uh, really get inside the, the neighborhood so that people would look out for them. Um, and, you know, it, it, it really had a great symbiotic relationship between, you know, the 20-somethings and the, and the people in the neighborhoods. Do you find that the Temple students uh, generally have a desire and an outlook that encompasses uh, the world rather than just Philadelphia or even just the United States? It's hard to say. Um, I, I think that the students at Temple are, are pretty streetwise. Uh, we have a, you know, we have a suburban component, but we also have an urban component. Um, you know, a number of African Americans, Hispanics, whites, uh, um, you know, Asians, and so it's a, it's, it's really a diverse milieu. Um, I'm, you know, I'm writing a recommendation for a Hispanic woman who just came back from uh, Turkey in the fall and she was part of my international reporting class and now she wants to go spend a semester at the Temple University campus in, in Japan and she wants to be a foreign correspondent. So, you know, there are, you know, there are people like that who do look outside of the, uh, of the United States and, you know, I, I don't, I teach international journalism once a year, sometimes once every two years and uh, I, it's not required but m the class is always filled and you know the people come from all different backgrounds and and uh, and experiences and we have a good time talking about international affairs it's so good to hear that because the international perspective is critical tell us about your experience as bureau chief for newsweek in beirut and your coining of the unforgettable term the butcher of baghdad <laughs> that got you expelled from iraq in 1980 well uh i was uh when i was a graduate student at northwestern i was part of the uh the Washington program. So I spent a, um, about three months in Washington in the middle of Watergate. And I really, I mean, I really caught the, the Washington um, uh, DC bug. And so I spent all of my time trying to get back to Washington. And I arrived there for Newsweek in 1978, no, uh, 1977. Um, and I got there in, uh, during the uh, administration of Jimmy Carter. And it was just god awful. I mean, I would do the the kind of second and third tier stories uh, where the Carter administration has messed up. So I went to the uh, the uh, chief of correspondence at Newsweek, saying, "Okay, you were right. I hate Washington. Where can I go?" And I thought, you know, maybe back to Chicago or Boston or Atlanta. And he said, "Well, Beirut's open." <laughs> Quite a difference from those three other places you mentioned. <clears throat> and so. I went to talk to my wife, and she said, well, it's got to be better than here. And so that's how we went to Beirut. Um, I arrived there in, uh, in the summer of 1979 um, as, you know, and the, 
one of the first stories that I covered was when Saddam Hussein came to power that summer and he held a, um, a cabinet meeting and essentially murdered about half of the people who were part of the cabinet, um, including you know, using his own pistol. And so when uh, the Iraq-Iran war started in 1980, uh, I was assigned to go there and they wanted a, you know, they wanted a profile of Saddam Hussein. And so um, I wrote one and unfortunately it got me into a lot of trouble because I did, I think I'm the first one to use the, uh, the moniker of the Butcher of Baghdad. And given the opportunity to do it again, despite the trouble that you went through, the, the difficulties, would you do it again? Would I call him the Butcher of Baghdad? Yeah, and follow the path that you did that got you expelled from Iraq. Well, um, I think that I would be a little bit more cautious. Um, but, you know, I was, you know I, was, I was young and, you know, I was out there to um, essentially tell the truth. I clearly didn't learn my lesson very well because the next year I was expelled uh, by Anwar Sadat, the uh, late president of Egypt, for my reporting about his, his problem with the Islamic fundamentalists uh, for ABC News. So um, I think that I would be a little bit more cautious these days. Well, tell us about the experience in Egypt, as you mentioned, for reporting on Anwar Sadat's relationship with Islamic militants. Uh, tell our, our listeners more about this. Sure. Um, I arrived... Uh, I, I talked to a friend of mine who worked for ABC News and, and slipped him a few too many rum and cokes at the, uh, at the Beirut bar when I was working for Newsweek and he essentially confirmed that he was making about twice as much money as I did working for Newsweek and he worked uh, for ABC News and I said well how do I become a TV correspondent? So we worked on it and um, nobody would go to Cairo. I guess I'm always taking jobs that nobody else wants to go to. Uh, and and essentially what I found was that uh, there was this Islamic fundamentalist uh, uh, groups which actually you know came into being as Al-Qaeda uh, was causing a great deal of problems and and the uh, Sadat regime's uh, um, means of dealing with the Islamic fundamentalists was essentially to lock them up. Um, as a result of, of my reporting um, he held a news conference just after an election in his hometown and he pointed at me and said if this were not a democracy I would have you shot and the next day I was summoned into the foreign ministry I was told that I had 24 hours to leave the country um, I left um, and went to Rome and uh, later and later to London and uh, three weeks later he was dead by a team uh, of people who were Islamic fundamentalists in the army. Yeah, hmm. it's uh, that was quite a period. And uh, a number of years later, your article titled "Al Jazeera: America's Debut," uh, published in the National Review in 2013, sparked a dialogue about Al Jazeera's quote unoriginal stories, uninspired reporting, and anti-American bias, end quote. Can you tell us more about what you discussed in the article and the feedback and the commentary that the article provoked? Well, essentially, I guess I didn't learn my, my, my lesson very well about attacking from various people. <laughs> yes. I sound like kind of an attack dog here. Um, what my, my fundamental problem with Al Jazeera uh, America um, was that it was financed almost entirely by the government of Qatar. And as a result, while the reporters, the editors, etc., said that there was no government involvement in the mission of Al Jazeera, it was clear that it had 
you know, a point of view. My feeling is, is that I don't care these days about a point of view. I think that that's all right. As long as you're transparent with me about what your motives are, what your financial backing is. And the problem that I had with uh, Al Jazeera America, which is failing miserably these days, is that the types of stories uh, that they were reporting were probably the most negative I've ever seen about the United States of America. And I'm not a flat, you know, I'm not a you know, flag-waving, you know, wingnut, but I, I just thought that there was clearly an agenda, and that agenda was to show the United States in its worst light, and also to give, uh, got her a seat at the table because of, of having uh, this uh, network in the United States. And what kind of response did the article uh, provoke? Um, it, it got a great deal of response and a, and a lot of discussion. I think that uh, there are a number of people who, who think that Al Jazeera is, uh, you know, quite a good network and, and tells good stories. So that there was, a, you know, unfortunately, I think with most of the discussion, people tend to talk in parallel lines and there's not really much of an intersection um, about a rational argument. It's, you know, I like this to hell with you, or I don't like this to hell with you. Unfortunately, I think that there was a lot of divide over what people liked and didn't like rather than a rational discussion of what was wrong with it. And some of these uh, things that you've described uh, obviously take courage, they take curiosity, they take perception. Uh, were you uh, uh, kind of given these, these qualities when you were growing up? Were these things that you had to learn or is this innate uh, to you and, and perhaps to, uh, to those who choose to go into journalism? Well, I, I, I pretty much raised myself, um, and so I had a pretty tough skin. And I think that that's, I think that that's one thing that's, that's important for anyone um, in you know, whatever milieu you're in, is that uh, you can be sensitive to people's feelings, but you also have to be insensitive to the amount of criticism that you're going to receive, pr particularly as a journalist. Um, you need to be you need to learn from that criticism, but I, I think I had it at a fairly early age. And what do you feel your students uh, should walk away with thanks to your teaching style, your beliefs, your approach to journalism itself? Well, my view is is that um, it's a continuing relationship with the students. And so uh, I'm in contact with students that I taught 20 years ago. And you know, I think that um, I can teach them certain things. Mostly I want them to think about kind of the, the more important issues. You know, what is the history of journalism? When I teach that, we go through some of the finest work in, in the English language, uh, you know, Hiroshima by John Hersey, for example, and to try to figure out, you know, what, what makes this so good? And so I want them to carry that along with them. I want them to carry the uh-oh problems of, of, of the law. I want them to to carry forward the ethical dilemmas and I always tell them that you need to establish that ethical construct before you face the ethical questions because if you don't have it you're going to kind of you know go on with the flow so I keep in touch with my students one one example of of how I didn't have an, a, a a good ethical structure in the beginning of my time as in journalism is that I covered uh, the, the the deaths of the 900 people at Jonestown Guyana and I was one of the six people I think who, who from the media who got into that isolated jungle and there were a lot of letters that had, had been written by many people who died to Jim Jones who was the the head of, of Jonestown and they all started out Dear Dad and I was scribbling in my notebook for I was then with Newsweek and then I saw these stacks of letters and I said why am I scribbling 
you know, why am I writing these down? And I just took them from this desk and I put them in my pocket, uh, went on the, the little airplane that we had and sent them off to New York and had a worldwide exclusive, okay? Um, but that was wrong. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm essentially publishing the innermost thoughts of someone who is probably dead and I'm invading their privacy and the privacy of their families in such a way that, you know, it was reprehensible. But I didn't, I didn't, and I tell this story, you know, journalism students and journalists will say, my God, you got this worldwide exclusive, I got a raise. I mean, everybody was happy, but then I started looking at what I did and what I did was wrong. And so I want them to, to take those things away. And, and then when they, you know, when they stub their toes or they're looking to move to a new organization, they know my, they know my email because it's imprinted in the back of their brains from the number of conversations that we've had online. And they, they come back and they, they talk to me. And we, we have a relationship that, that continues today. That's wonderful here to hear about this relationship. Would you consider yourself to be a mentor to students? Um, I, you know, I'm a tough love mentor, but, um, you know, I, I really enjoy working with students. Um, they know that I'm tough. They know that, they know that they'll learn from me. Um, and there's a softer side of me as well. And, 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 and so I, I do, you know, it's not a mentor with a capital M, but the kind of, you know, I'm their boss, I'm the teacher, I'm not their friend, but they know that they can learn from me, um, you know, while they're out there. I mean, I'm, I've been nominated for a, a major teaching award, and one of the students said a recommendation in which he, and he graduated about four years ago, and he said that he wished that he could do an evaluation um, over again that he gave me uh, when he took uh, Philadelphia Neighborhoods, and said, you know, I got it wrong, okay? I now realize that I was too harsh, the student was too harsh in his evaluation, and now he realizes that what I was trying to do was, was to make him as good as he could be. That's wonderful to hear. And for students and the larger public, uh, the best way to reach Chris and to find out more about his work is by visiting his page online within Temple University's School of Media and Communication, uh, or his page on the Washington Times online, or by following him on Twitter at charper51. Uh, for our listeners, click on the links above this podcast for further details. Chris, it's great to share this time with you, and we wish you all the best in your crucial ongoing work. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.